Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 64 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. I have long hated, really, the analogy that those who are suffering with cancer are somehow in a battle or a war. You know, when people say things like, oh, he's a fighter, he's going to come through, or you're so strong, you can make it through. It just irritates me. It really acts like if you are somehow not strong enough, that's why you died from cancer, that you just didn't put up enough of a fight, as if you could do more yourself. Sometimes the brave thing to do is to sit with your loved one and just try to enjoy the time that you have left. That's what happened with Isla's parents. After she was diagnosed with a brain tumor after only a few weeks of life. Isla's mom talks about this journey, the decision that they had to make regarding putting her through a treatment that might not have changed anything since she certainly was going to die. As a pleasant little aside here, I had long wondered who my faithful Alberta, Canada audience is. I have more than 600 downloads in Alberta, which is far more than many countries, and had been really curious who started this little Alberta group that keeps growing. It turns out Melissa, Isla's mom, was the one to start the Alberta group. So now, thank you to all of my Alberta listeners. I know that you are going to love hearing about Isla today and hearing from your friend Melissa. One more reminder, I announced last week the two special episodes coming out on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. The Christmas Eve episode is another Messages of Hope episode where people can share stories about their children and kind of unexplainable things that have happened since their children have gone to heaven. I have had several people already contribute and I'm very excited about that. The second episode is the What I Wish I Knew, really geared towards those parents who are new in their grief journey. So I'd like some of my more veteran parents or even some new ones who feel like they have some advice to give to offer advice on what they wish they would have known in those first days and weeks. That one I haven't gotten any contributions yet, so please contribute to that. Again, you can record yourself, or with that second one, it may almost make more sense to just write something out or write a list of things that you feel like you wish you knew. That episode I think I'm going to do with my husband, Eric, so we can just read off some lists and have discussion about some different points that people bring up. 
Again, email any of these contributions to Marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, at andysmom.com. So for now, please enjoy Melissa and hearing the story of amazing little Isla. Welcome, Melissa. I'm very happy to have you on the show today and for you to talk about your daughter. Thank you so much. I'm excited to tell you about her. Well, why don't we just go ahead and get started and have you tell us about Isla? Okay. So I'll start a little bit before Isla was born. Mm -hmm. So my husband, Mark, and I, um, we got married in 2018. Prior to that, when we first got together, he had experienced quite a bit of loss in his life already at that point. Um, So he had lost his um, mom when he was 18 years old to breast cancer. And he then lost his first wife to pancreatic cancer when she was 33 years old. So when Mark and I initially got together, yeah. So we got together kind of within that first year after he had lost his first wife. So he was very very deep in grief still. And you said you understand grief though too because of your career choice. So I think that probably helped you feel more comfortable being with a man who is so newly grieving. Yeah. Yeah. I work um, as a nurse in oncology and palliative care for the last eight or so years. So although I've never had any major losses myself, I do watch people go through great loss. Yeah, and I think it doesn't seem quite as scary when you Mm -hmm. witness it and live it in that kind of way. So, I mean, a lot of women would have been awfully scared off, I think, by by starting to have a relationship with a newly bereaved man like that. But, I mean, that was a brave thing to do for you, really. Yeah, and it... It was, it was hard for a long time, of course, because, I mean, he was so deep in grief. I mean, he, he still is six years later, but, um, I mean, that was a really, really hard time for him. So it was hard, but I also knew that he was kind of worth the yeah. weight and stuff. So, yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, so he, like, when we first um, got together, he wasn't sure if he wanted kids. He had so much loss already and he just had an overwhelming feeling like if if we have kids, something's going to happen to them too. You know, everybody I love dies. And to me, I thought, you know, he's already had so much loss in his life. The chances of us having a child and them being ill enough or having an accident take place that we lose them. It's just the chances aren't incredibly high of that. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because you think like, well, I've had my bad thing. And you think mm-hmm. with him, like, well, he's had two big bad things, so that's got to be it for him, right? Like, you yeah. can check, like, I've done the bad stuff. Now life is going to be sort of smooth from here. Mm-hmm. I know I felt that way. I felt like, totally. like you know, I I had a good amount of loss as a kid, mm-hmm. too, because both of my parents had cancer and both of my parents had underwent chemotherapy. And I, you kind of think that's OK, that you've done your bad thing. And then, of course, my mom relapsed and then eventually died. So, again, like you, I was kind of feeling like, well, yeah, my older childhood was kind of cruddy. So yeah. God owes me or something like life totally. owes me to be good now and I shouldn't have to worry about anything. So I think it's so funny that we naturally go that way, but I think it 
it is how you go and where you go. Yeah. Even now, since Isla passed away, people say that to us, like, oh, you'll, you'll be fine now though. Like, you know, your, like your future kids will be okay now though. And it's like, no, like we just know too well that it's not just like you get your certain number, like amount of loss and then you're good. So it's, it's a scary place to be in to have experienced loss more than once, like for Mark. Yeah. Yeah. So Mark, he, he worked through um, therapy for a while to kind of process his other losses. And about a year later, he almost like, it was almost like a proposal one day. He like stopped me in a field when we were on a walk one day and told me that he had made up his mind that he wanted to have kids. And it was like this big, wonderful moment because it meant that we could like move forward with our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, from that point on, he never turned back on that again. He just like, he decided we were going to have kids and then he was, he was all for it and he was excited. Um, so that was really great. So we, we got married in 2018 and then the next year, so 2019, we ended up getting pregnant. We had our first ultrasound. That was all great. That ultrasound was pretty early. At 10 weeks old, that pregnancy, we actually lost. So that was really devastating at the time. Um, So we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. We thought maybe it would have been a girl. We named the baby Brooklyn. And so that was, that was the biggest loss I had had up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard for Mark too, but it was not the first loss he'd had. And it was like a different type of loss. So I was devastated for a few months after that. And I mean, he was really sad too. And then three months after our miscarriage, we got pregnant with our daughter, Isla. So that pregnancy, we were just like so grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Um, because we'd had the miscarriage and we just knew how lucky we were. So like all the morning sickness, like the weight gain, like everything, I just was, I was just really excited about everything. Like I was so grateful to be feeling sick and to like every week that we got further along in that pregnancy, I was just so grateful for both of us were after the miscarriage, Mark really realized that he really, really wanted kids. Mm -hmm. But that pregnancy, it was also scary just because we had the loss. I bled through a lot of that pregnancy through like the first trimester and then a few times in the third trimester. So then every time you of course think you're losing it once you've had a miscarriage once. So, but every time we'd find out she was doing well and then we finally got to the end of the pregnancy and Isla, she arrived and she was just like, we knew we were like, we knew we loved her obviously in my tummy, but gosh, like she just, we loved her so much. And it, it kind of felt in a way like, like Mark had been through so much loss and it kind of felt like things were just like, she was just this like big bright light in our lives. And it was like, things are going to be okay, you know, for Mark. And like, you know, we are like starting a family. She was just, we loved her so much. Mm -hmm. She was just beautiful and she was so sweet. She was born like right at the beginning of COVID ramping up here. So like as we hadn't really paid a ton of attention to COVID prior to that, because we were just focusing on getting her here safely. We were being safe with it, of course, but we hadn't really thought about what it would mean for us. Um, So literally as I was about to start pushing, the doctor started talking to us about that we should probably be considering like isolating with her. So that was kind of a big like, oh, I guess so. So after she was 
born the first day there was no like actual restrictions in place yet so the first day I just couldn't stand not to so we had parents um, and my sister come over and they met Isla briefly but then after that it just things started getting a bit too scary with COVID and Mm -hmm. we just thought we love her so much and we don't want anything to happen to her so then we decided to just isolate with her at that point so from then until the time she got sick it was just the three of us and we isolated from everybody. Other people got Facebook like visits with Isla. But other than that, Mark was off work with us and we just like spend those weeks just like cuddling and Mark was writing her songs and we just had like a wonderful few weeks with her. She was the best baby. She was just like content and she rarely fussed and she loved to eat and she slept well. And I said many, many times to Mark that I just felt like it was just too good to be true because we were just, we were really, really happy in those weeks. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Then what happened with Isla? So When Isla was four weeks old, um, one of her eyelids kind of started to droop a little bit. But like, I kind of have one eye that's like that in pictures. I thought it wasn't a big deal. The next day, I noticed that one of her pupils was bigger than the other, which in where I work with cancer patients, when we see that, we tend to be concerned about like brain tumors and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. So when I seen that one of her pupils was more dilated than the other, I panicked instantly. We sent pictures to her doctor. And and now we're like really in the middle of COVID. Because when was this now? This would have probably been like the end of April, end of April, mm-hmm. end, to end of April. So then it's like you're then at that point, it was like scary to take your newborn baby anywhere. Mm-hmm. So we were just like sending pictures back and forth. And she said, as long as she's acting fine and normal, then she wasn't going to be in the office for a few days. So she said, we can we'll just assess, like, you can come in in a few days. And she was acting normal, so I thought that was fine. So we went in a few days later, and she assessed her, and she felt that she just had, like, one pupil that was, I guess, a percentage of the population do have that, and there's no issue with it. So she felt with her assessment that that was the case. But she booked us in with a specialist because of COVID. They said it might be an eight-month wait. But, you know. Yeah. So, but I think we just kind of like grasped onto that. Like you say, it's okay. Then like, and we didn't have any reason, like, you know, she was acting normal otherwise. Mm -hmm. But then within a few days, I just, I got like sick over it. Like my gut was just telling me something was wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it maybe got slightly worse, but it wasn't like drastic. It's just like, I felt that something was terribly wrong. Well, especially because you noticed it at a, on a specific day, you know, right mm-hmm. after you noticed the droopy eyelid, and it hadn't been there before. You know, I see kids when I do their checkups, I see kids, it's called anisocoria when you have two pupils of oh, different okay. sizes. And yeah. I will mark it on their sports physical forms, actually. So if they are ever hit and have a head injury, in the middle of a game that all the trainers know that they have two different size pupils at baseline. And as long as they're both functioning and will get bigger and smaller with light and are reactive and move around, you don't need to worry. But it is always important to note that. So I'm sure your pediatrician just thought, well, she just didn't notice those first four weeks and they were like that from birth. 
Um, Because I, you do see that. And I've seen that certainly in, in newborns that come in. Um, And it's certainly more noticeable if you're in a dark room, because you'll be able to see it more. So it's not, you know, that wasn't an unreasonable response. But it also wasn't unreasonable for you to be concerned, because you were quite certain that it wasn't there. And then suddenly it was. And when that, it's that big of a change, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know. And I was questioning, like, did I just miss it? And mm-hmm. then I kept thinking, like, that's so weird that, like, that I would miss that. And, you know, like, I'm a nurse. And I just kept thinking, yeah, I was, I but I was questioning myself. And, like, maybe, maybe it was there and I just didn't notice. And you just want to believe that that's, that's right. what it is. Right. So then you kind of. Like for a second, I just kind of went with it because I was just like, that that would be the best scenario. Well, here and again, I think you're going back to the we've had a lot of bad stuff, especially your husband has had mm-hmm. a lot of bad stuff. Mm-hmm. We just can't have another bad thing happen. Right. Yeah. We've done I, our I, duty. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. So I ended up calling um, her doctor again and I said, I like, I don't know if I'm just being paranoid, but I just feel like something's wrong. So they got us into the specialist like less than 48 hours later. Mm-hmm. And he said what I suspected that it was a third nerve palsy. So it was an issue with her third nerve. So he sent us straight to the hospital in our city here and we were admitted to the peace unit and again, COVID. So Mark wasn't allowed to be with us. They did an ultrasound there, couldn't see anything in her brain. So then they sent us um, to the big children's hospital an hour and a half away. So Isla and I went there by ambulance. Again, Mark's not allowed to be with us. We got there. They started asking us about family history of brain cancer. And I'm just thinking they're just being cautious. Um, That's not what it's going to be. And then next morning, she went for her MRI we were sitting outside of the MRI and that's the first, or I was sitting outside of the MRI. And that's the first moment where I just, I just like all of a sudden had an overwhelming feeling that they were going to find a mass of some sort. My parents and my sister, like we didn't grow up in church. I kind of got more involved with church when I met Mark, but my family, like they're not like one, you know, they're not typically like the type of people to pray and stuff. And I texted them when she was in the MRI and said, like, if you're going to ever pray, this is the time you need to start because like, I think something, I think they're going to find something. Mm -hmm. Um, So we went back up to the unit and within half an hour, her neurologist and her residents came in and Mark was just on FaceTime with us all the time since he wasn't allowed in. And he's on FaceTime with us. And she said, Mark, I'm going to assess her and then we'll talk. Just stay on FaceTime. And as soon as she told him to stay on FaceTime so we could talk, we both just knew. Mm-hmm. We went and sat down and they, they, like the three of them, they pulled their chairs in really close to me and Isla. And I just, I couldn't even look at them because I knew what they were about to say. I just was staring at the ground thinking like, please don't say it. And then they told us that they'd found a tumor um, right on top of Isla's brainstem. So just like right as deep in as you yeah. can go. I just, I lost it. Um, I just thought like this can't, and I just, I think I repeated to those, the staff that day, like a million times, like I told Mark this wouldn't happen. Like it just, it almost felt like it was happening because I just kept saying so much that, that it wasn't going to happen. And then it was happening. And I asked if it looked like it was cancerous and they said 
they hope they were wrong, but it did look that way. Mm-hmm. After that, I called Mark's friend and he came and picked him up and he, he brought Mark out there because I didn't want him driving. Um, he still wasn't allowed in the hospital at that point, but he just, he stayed at a nearby hotel. Eventually they let him in for a couple hours that night to be with us, luckily. Yeah. And then they kind of, they came in that evening and they told us that it, the tumor was inoperable. They didn't know what type of tumor it was, but the, where it was at, they just couldn't reach it. Um, it. They wouldn't be able to remove it. They kind of told us that they don't know what, which way this is going to go, but they said kids with cancer tend to be really resilient. You know, I'm used to adults, which is a bit different. Mm-hmm. And Mark's experience is a bit different, but they said like, kids they often do quite well and I said so there's there's a little hope and they said there's more than a little hope and so that kind of got us through the upcoming weeks for quite a yeah some of the weeks after that Mm. and they always commented that she was so strong and stuff um Then they proceeded to do a bunch of tests to try to figure out what type of tumor it was. The first day, the neurosurgeon said to us, like, I don't want to biopsy this. It's going to be too high risk. We need to, like, figure out another way to diagnosis. And as she was leaving, she said, I hope I don't see you again. Mm -hmm. So they did a bunch of tests. On Mother's Day, while we were waiting for test results, they let us take Isla home. Um, Because at this point, we're thinking she's going to be starting chemo. She hasn't met anybody yet. So... We brought her home for a week um, and she just spent some time just like with our parents and my sister, just because we thought we could potentially be in the hospital for a long time after that. And throughout that week, she got more and more fussy. We thought it was maybe just her age. She was like, I guess like eight weeks at that point. And then they finally called us back to the hospital on the way back to the hospital, like an hour and a half away. She normally was so calm in the car. And she just loved it. And she screamed that whole car ride. So it was then that I realized that she was starting to like really have some pain. Mm -hmm. So we got back to the hospital. She ended up, it ended up that she was actually in a lot of pain. And we just were thinking that it was normal, like baby fussiness. They eventually kind of got that under control. They did a bunch more tests. And at this point, her eyesight was like pretty much completely gone. It only took a couple weeks for her eye, for her to lose her sight. So both like the tumor, you could, you could see the tumor growing every day almost because every day, every day her eyes got worse. They were like turned out to the side and they were completely closed. She couldn't open them anymore. So we could tell things were really progressing. Mm -hmm. So they weren't able to figure out what type of tumor it was. So it ended up that they needed to do the biopsy and that was a big deal and it was scary. Yeah. And they really need to know what type of tumor it is because the, depending on the tumor type, the treatment is so much different. I think the general public thinks that a brain tumor is a brain tumor is a brain tumor and chemo Mm -hmm. is chemo is chemo, but it's not even close. There Mm -hmm. are so many different medications that you use based on what type of tumor it is and how that grows and how it is attacked best. So it's really impossible. You, You can't do chemo therapy unless you know what you're up against so I mean just to kind of clarify because I think Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that yeah yeah we were kind of at a standstill like there was Mm -hmm. nothing we could do unless we figured out what type of tumor it was so Mm -hmm. they they told us there was a big chance that we could lose her as a result of the just getting the biopsy 
yeah, they told us that it was super, super risky, but at the same time we were going to, it was spread, like it was moving so fast. Mm-hmm. We were going to lose her if we didn't do the biopsy too. So it just, it made sense to do it to us. So they, they pulled some strings and they finally got the higher ups, I guess, to agree to let Mark be in there with us for the day of the surgery. We handing her off to walking her to the OR and handing her off was so hard. Oh I like gosh. in my line of work, when patients' families say to me, like, please take good care of my loved one. I always think like, of course I'm going to, like, you don't need to tell me that. Of course I'm going to take good care of them. And I like begged them to take good care of her that day as we handed her off to them. Mm-hmm. So that surgery is six or seven hours. Um, and finally the neurosurgeon came in and said that it had been successful and she was stable and then got the biopsies and she was doing well. And so that was like the one positive or the one like encouraging moment mm-hmm. that we had throughout all of this. It was like, Hey, maybe everything's going to be okay. She made it through this, like, look how strong she is. So we went and met her in ICU and that kind of all came crashing down again. Like when you see your child intubated and she had a big incision on her head and all these lines everywhere and they were trying to, wake her up so that they could take the breathing tube out and so she was having pain and so it was hard seeing her in ICU but then they were able to take the breathing tube and stuff out but then the next day she had started having some major issues with her breathing she was stopping breathing and her like her oxygen levels were plummeting and she was going blue Um, so they ended up doing an MRI and they found out then at that point that she'd had a stroke or as a result of the surgery I guess she'd had a stroke Mm. Which I mean, we kind of knew that there, I mean, we knew there was a high chance of something happening. So she had a stroke, but they thought it was small. Um, But then they ended up doing some tests on her brain. um, And they found out that she, as a result of the stroke, she was having seizures like constantly. And they were like 15 seconds apart. So it was just like constant. Um, So at that point, she wasn't waking up at all, of course. Yeah. So they, they told us at that point, we had a meeting and they said that they weren't they weren't sure if they were going to be able to get her seizures under control. And then, so we might have to start making some decisions on like what we want to do. But luckily they actually did get her seizures under control that night. So we were really grateful for that. And then shortly after, like we found out that the type of tumor she had was an atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor. So it's ATRT. And it's like a really rare and really aggressive type of brain tumor that they see mostly in young children. That's not one that I'm familiar with. So it is really rare. Yeah, I had never heard of it before. I mean, we hadn't really done a ton of research. Which is good. Good for you. Yeah. And Mark would not let me. He knows from his previous experience, he was always like, you do not look this up. (laughs) So, So yeah, we knew nothing about it. They walked us into a meeting with like 12 doctors and initially they said to us a prog- like with ATRT the prognosis is less than 50% but Isla's so young and the tumor is in such a bad place that it's far less than 50% mm-hmm. um, but they didn't that's the only number we heard was 50% like we didn't know how much less it was than 50% and they said you know like normally to cure this you need chemo radiation and surgical removal but we couldn't do radiation and we couldn't remove it surgically but at the end of that meeting we thought like 50% is the only number we heard out of that so like I guess like we'll proceed with chemo then but 
then the next day there was a new doctor who walked into Isla's room and he said to us, like her prognosis is like, in his opinion, her prognosis, like she would not, she would not live past, like she would not live nine more months, even Mm -hmm. with treatment. And so that's when everything changed for us. And I was, you know, she was already suffering so much Mm -hmm. and I just started thinking, like, I don't know if I can put her through chemo knowing that she's going to die in this hospital on this admission. Like, and she's suffering so much already. And she was, I mean, she was only like 10 weeks old by that time. And so from that point, I started asking every doctor that walked in her room. And I started like, like sending people out to go hunt down different doctors for me to ask their opinion to just like her whole team. And then so over the next few days, So we kind of heard like the most optimistic doctor, which was her oncologist, which I've kind of heard that they, like, you kind of have to be optimistic to get up every day and like, you know, chemo to kids. And he he was the most optimistic and he had said 10 to 20%. And that was the best um, opinion. And then we had her, her neurosurgeon who said she had, she said that she personally had not seen a baby as young as Isla survive ATRT. Um, and she said, maybe if there's a miracle, she'll survive. Um, so she said maybe one to 2%. But the general consensus with all of the doctors was that if she survived after the chemo, after the brain surgery, after the stroke and the seizures and the tumors, which were now like, were spreading, like they were all throughout her brain at this point. They said that if she survives, she'll probably be blind. They said there's a potent- there's a possibility she could be deaf. Um, they said she might have a permanent feeding tube. She might have like she could have a trach. Like it was it was really infiltrating her brain stem at that point too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said her cognitive delays and issues would be like could be quite extreme. So that was kind of the general consensus if she did survive. So the day before we were about to start chemo, we sat down for like the final meeting before it and. Mark and I both just all of a sudden were just like, like when we were hearing about the chemo that she would need to be in ICU for all of it, that she needs stem cell transplants because otherwise she wouldn't survive the chemo because it was going to be so hard on her. We just thought like, we just, we felt so strongly that she was going to pass away soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And we just thought like, why it just for like, for our specific situation with Isla it didn't make sense for us to give her chemo and have her like final weeks or months in the hospital when we could try to take her home. Again, at this point, nobody's met her. Like the most optimistic doctor, the oncologist, I asked him if he thought we'd be cruel for taking her home. And he said he thought like my feelings that she would likely pass away soon. Either way, he said there's an extremely good chance you're right. And then he told us his opinion on us taking her home was that it was compassionate, courageous, and realistic. And at that point, we thought like, hey, if he's the most optimistic out of the bunch and he's telling us that this is realistic, then like this is what's right. So it was devastating to make that decision to take her home because it meant that she was actually going to die. But at the same time, it felt the other like giving her chemo it just wasn't sitting well with us Mm -hmm. we just we felt like we were going to be putting her through more suffering when we knew she was she was dying and she she was going to die either way so Mm -hmm. we so we took her home and we they said that she might have a couple months maybe 
Um, we took her home on the day she turned 11 weeks old and she was with us for two weeks after we got home. <laughs> we had like an amazing two weeks with her. They were amazing and they were like the moment they were devastating and heartbreaking but she was like giving us strength because we we couldn't like lay down and cry we like we needed to like make these memories with her Mm -hmm. and we needed her we didn't want her to feel like everybody was just sat around her so at this point COVID restrictions were not as strict um so we had a list of like our closest friends and family and we just they all came um like we'd have a couple visitors a day and they would come and meet her safely with covid they would come and meet her and we just like cuddled her a ton somebody came and did like amazing family pictures for us a big thing my family has a cabin an hour away and it's like our favorite place Mm -hmm. and we were we were planning on spending the summer out there with isla and planning on having her grow up out there so we were able to make it out there with her and she had the best like four days out there. It was like the late air did her good. Like she needed less morphine than she'd needed in weeks. And she was like having like awake moments where she was like kicking and making happy noises. Aww. And at that point, yeah. And at that point she had basically just been sleeping. So to see her like awake and happy, it was like, it was just an, a really amazing weekend. It was like an where I work, sometimes we see people like before they pass away, they'll like get a little bit better for a bit mm-hmm. and then they'll decline. And it was almost like that's what was happening that weekend. It's like, it was like kind of her, like, it was like she was giving us a gift of kind of having a really good weekend. Mm-hmm. So then we took her home. We were planning on doing, we knew she wouldn't be here for Christmas. Um, so we were planning on doing Christmas at the lake again on June 26th. Cause like Christmas, it was always a, like something that I really loved. And so, and having a Christmas with Isla was just like my dream. So we had like, we were planning a Christmas for June 26th, but then on the 18th, she started to kind of deteriorate. We were at home still. She started moaning a lot. She was too sick to really cry at that point. So we were on the phone with her doctors all day, getting her pain meds adjusted and stuff. But we thought she was just in a pain crisis like we'd only been home with her for two weeks so we thought we just needed to get her pain under control and then we'd have her for longer still Mm -hmm. but into that evening there came a point where we had like with her doctors on the phone we had like tripled her morphine and we were we had given her just like insane amounts of morphine that day and nothing was helping her moans so I I called my family over and stuff because I thought I just I thought everything was going to be fine but just something was yeah. yeah we had the lights all dimmed and we had like flameless candles going and music playing and just like trying to give her a nice environment while we get and got this pain sorted out. And with the dim lighting, I looked at her at one point and I thought she looks like her color doesn't look good. And so we turned on the lights and it was at that point that I realized that she was passing away. Mm -hmm. And my sister works healthcare too. And I said, she's going to die tonight. And my sister said, I think she is. So at that point, my brain shut off. My brain could not, would just not work anymore at that Mm -hmm. point. So I was thinking she's dying. She's in pain. And I'm so not okay with that. So we called her pediatrician and he said, what's your address? And he came right over and he agreed that she was passing away. So he said, let's go into the hospital, just like in our 
city. So they just had the one pediatric unit. And he said, let's go into the hospital. Like we'll switch up her medications there. We'll try to get her pain under control. And then like we can take over the medications and stuff. Cause like it was, it was quite a bit of work given like all of her medications and stuff at that point. So he said like, we'll take over this stuff and then you guys can just focus on cuddling her and stuff. So we went into the hospital. The drive there was super hard. It seemed like she just like, we realized she was passing away and then she just deteriorated rapidly. So the drive to the hospital, I just held her, didn't put her in her car seat. And we sang, like, I was sure, she, I felt like she was going to pass away in the car. So we sang You Are My Sunshine, which was our song. We sang that to her the whole way to the hospital. Um, and she made it there and we got up on the unit and they got her pain under control for a while. We got there just after midnight, but at like, at 4.30, she just went into like major distress and I was not expecting it at all. Um, none of us were. It was Mark and my sister and I at the hospital at that point. And so there was three or four hours there that were, I think, for sure, some of the most horrifying hour, hours of my life. She just, like, she was struggling with her breathing. She was struggling with what seemed like pain. She started seizing. She was vomiting. She was, like, oh, no. like it, yeah, it was it was really awful. And there was several times where we thought that she was gone, which is, like, it's normal. I know when people pass away for them to stop breathing. But it, her, the periods of her, like, stopping breathing were so much longer than what I was used to with adults. And when her body would kind of, like, kick into gear again, she was just, like, almost, like, hollering like a toddler. Like, it was just, it was just awful. And in those hours, I was just, like, begging God to take her. Yeah. And, like, what a horrible thing to have to ask for you, like, to ask for your baby to die. But it was just... You are not the first one to do that, though. Yeah, Yeah. it's just when you, watching anybody suffer is horrible, and then watching a child suffer is horrible, and then watching your own child suffer is just unlike anything. Mm -hmm. So she finally settled, and then our pastor came in, and he said a prayer for her. We had meant to dedicate her, and we didn't get a chance. So he came and did like a little dedication and prayer for her, and... Then I don't know how long it was. He said it was like 30 seconds later and then she passed away. Yeah. So he told that story at her funeral and I didn't really realize the significance of it at the time, but it's like, it's something that's been comforting for Mark and I. It's like she waited, isn't it? Totally. And I guess that's one of the first things I said to her after she passed away because I kept saying like what is she waiting for like she's just holding on like so long and she just like I just wish she could like let go and then yeah and then now you know now you know why she waited I know beautiful thing yeah and when she first passed away it was kind of like there was like you know I've listened to some of your other podcasts and it's so like different you know like those of you who have went through accidents with your children it's like those initial moments I think must be like so different Mm -hmm. because like I almost felt like when it's a little bit drawn out like I I felt relief and like we were devastated of course and we were like pretty numb but I felt like I think those initial moments I just felt relieved that Mm -hmm. she was at peace after like those horrible hours of her suffering. Yeah, I've talked to my friend Michelle, 
who was mm-hmm. on a very, very early episode. She lost both of her sisters to cancer. And okay. she talks about how with both of them, she was praying at the end, please, God, take them. Please yeah. take them. Because it's just so hard to see them go through that. And I, I've, that's always stuck with me because mm-hmm. that is a big difference from what I went through where it was just like yeah. we were having a conversation and then the next second he was gone. So it is. <laughs> and, and I don't know that one is better than the other. Honestly, I don't no. I don't think that that can be said that one's totally. better than the other. My friend Stephanie has said the same thing that as they were waiting for Kian to die, she just needed her to die. It just got to that point. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. And you're right. There's like not one is better or worse than the other. It's just, they're just different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were just so brave in everything that you did. And I just admire that so much. You know, I have worked with a lot of families over the years and there's one that has always stuck with me. I was, I was just about a week from finishing my residency at the University of Iowa. And I had um, been overnight working in the NICU. And there was a baby that we knew was going to be born and had two major things wrong. So had it had an emphalocele, which means that you have this kind of opening into the stomach. So all the stomach contents kind of end up on the outside in this sac. So it's not where it's supposed to be. And then it the baby also had only instead of having two ventricles, it had only one ventricle. So the main ventricle is the left ventricle that pumps blood to the body. That was not really there. So it had a hypoplastic left heart is what that's called. Mm-hmm. And both are horrible to have. And at the time, this is now 20 years ago, I don't know what it is now. But at the time 20 years ago, they said if you ha- were born with this kind of emphalocele, you had about a 50% chance of survival. And if you were born with hypoplastic left heart, you had a 50% chance of survival. And that's what they told the family. Okay, that is not what that baby's chances of survival were. When you had something that had a 50% chance of survival on top of something else with a 50% chance of survival, Mm -hmm. that was virtually zero. So it ended up that baby's heart was in the emphalocele, was in the sac. So it wasn't even under the chest. And so the baby was born. And instead of sitting with mom and dad, which is what should have happened, because someone should have been, I think, brave enough to say, both of those things in and of themselves would give your baby a 50% chance of survival. But since they're together, it's really not and it's not even close and it's pretty much zero because that's what it was like this baby came back to the NICU and I thought to myself what are we doing Mm -hmm. yeah what are we doing so within minutes the baby's heart stopped I'm supposed to do chest compressions which I had to do basically directly on a heart because it's not beneath a chest so you were doing compressions on a heart because we are trying to keep the baby alive long enough for at least dad to come back. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Never should have happened. 
Because what should have happened was that baby should have been put immediately on that mom's arms. And Mm -hmm. dad and mom should have hugged that little baby until I can't even remember now if it was a boy or girl, but until that baby died. Yeah. Which wouldn't have made one bit of difference, actually. I mean, we didn't make that baby live any longer. He came back with a heartbeat. It just was going to live an hour or two, period. Right. No matter what happened. So I have felt for so many years, like, I mean, obviously none of this was my call, right? I was in training. I was way below all of this, but I feel like what a mistake was made. And now, especially after losing Andy, I think, wow, that, that mom didn't get to see that baby at all. Instead, we had dad coming up as we're like doing CPR on this baby that shouldn't have had CPR done on it at all. Mm-hmm. And then he basically had to say stop, which is not what you want. No, and then you, then you that stays with you when right. you have. And to, and I just, I mean, this is that. obviously twenty years ago. I hope mm-hmm. nothing like this would ever happen now. But it stuck with me as how bad that was, and I see bits of that in what you're telling me. Yeah. Because they do look at things like, oh, okay, well, this is 50. Now you're way less than 50, but we're not going to really tell you because we don't want you to lose hope. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not fair to the family to put that because then what happened is you had to ask 15 people, anyone that could possibly give you an answer, what's the mm-hmm. best thing to do here? And honestly, I think the only reason you were able to do that is because of your history as a nurse. Yeah. Because I think the average mom wouldn't have done that. No, I think you're right. And that's, and that even in itself has been hard, like since, like I've, I've struggled with the decision we made, not because I think we made the wrong decision, but I go back to those things. Like I go back to like, when they said 50% and I go back to like, like all of her doctors were honestly amazing, but I go back to like the 10 to 20% and it's like 10 to 20% is way different than 0%. And I know 10 to 20% still isn't great, but then, and I think if I wasn't a nurse and a nurse like with in like oncology and palliative care, I don't know what decision we would have made. And I feel like it's hard to come by other families who've been in similar situation who have made the same decision that we have. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to like find other people to relate to that. And I like, since I, I have talked to a lot of Isla's doctors since like I've had phone conversations with them just to say like, we didn't make the wrong decision, right? Just to kind of ease my mind a little bit. And I've had so many of them tell us that we did. And I've had so many of them tell us like, this is what we would have done. Like if it was our own Mm -hmm. children Mm -hmm. and like the more people and the more doctors I hear that from, the more I'm coming to terms with it. You a hundred percent did the right thing. A hundred percent. I mean, there's not even the littlest doubt in my mind that that was the right thing to do. You got to bring her home. Yeah. And we had like an amazing two weeks. Like, and you know, I see how other like I know what it would have looked like if she would have passed away in the hospital and she passed away so quickly after the, after we left, like, I'm sure she would have passed away after maybe her first round of chemo. But I know if we were in the hospital, when she started passing, we would have been doing tests and she would have been feeling worse and it wouldn't have 
I mean, her passing was still hard, but it would have been even worse than it was. Mm -hmm. But it's like you wouldn't have had the lake memories and those two weeks of memories you would have lost. And you may have had four weeks instead of two or five weeks instead of two, but likely not much. Right. Likely it wasn't going to go nine months. I mean. In pediatrics, we try to be so optimistic because in general, kids do get better. And especially if you have some of the blood cancers like leukemias and lymphomas, they have a really excellent prognosis. And those kids, a lot of them do really, really well. Um, The solid tumors are much more difficult, certainly, to treat. But I've always thought it would be really hard to be an oncologist in general But the only way I would do it is if I did it with kids, which I knew a good percentage of them were going to get better. Because with adults, so many, I mean, so many don't. Yeah, like my unit, a lot of people, by the time they come to us, like, I feel like we don't very often see things go well. Mm -hmm. So then, but then like with that perspective, like working with adult oncology, then I like with I like kept thinking like, is my experience here like skewing me the wrong way? Like, should I not be thinking that we need to palliate her? You know, it's just like I not having been around like pediatric oncology, I really, yeah, it was just so hard to know. And then when you're hearing different opinions, which is normal, I know for everybody to have a different opinion, but hearing the different opinions, it just made it so difficult. Yeah. But, Mark, since, since Isla's passed away, Mark has really, um, he's never swayed from that decision. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have a lot and I don't know if it's as much guilt as it is like, maybe just like feeling a bit traumatized that we had to make that decision more so than guilt, Mm -hmm. but he has like stood by that decision. And anytime I'm doubting the decision we made, he's like very, good at like helping me remember everything everybody said and like talking me through all of it again to kind of come to a place where I can like be at peace with it again for a little bit. Well, that's good because Mm -hmm. I, I can't even tell you enough how much I think that was the right thing for you to do and how much you were able to get from her that I just don't think you would have had otherwise. And it's just so different for every kid, right? Because, you know, you do, kids do tend to be more resilient. So a lot of times they do get better and it's hard to know for sure. But this certainly did not seem like a case that there, there was much question about really. It didn't feel like it. She like, even like she was sick for six weeks from diagnosis to when she passed away. And she had five MRIs in that time, which is like way more than they would normally do in six weeks. And every time it was just like, it was just, it was so aggressive. It was, there was more and more tumors every time it was, she declined so fast. And it just, even without them telling us, I just knew in my gut that it was just, it was so bad. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, we get her home and even though they told us she was dying, like we knew she was dying, but I was still in denial. Yeah. Like we were saying like, she might still be here at Christmas. And it's like, obviously she wasn't going to be here at Christmas, but it was almost like still like a shock when she died. We were kind of like, oh, like we didn't actually believe it. Yeah. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like my, like she passed away on the Friday and on the Wednesday, my sister and Mark and I were sitting there saying like, I think she might be here at Christmas. We might get a June Christmas and a real Christmas with her. And we were 
so far off, but like even looking back at videos with her, we didn't realize how sick she looked like with this type of tumor, like their head circumference really grows. And so her like, her head was growing and I think her face was kind of getting a bit shiny as like the skin was stretching and stuff. And, you know, you could, looking back at videos, you can tell how sick she was, but we almost just didn't even realize even days before. Well, and I think your body protects you from that, right? Your mind is not wanting to let you get it all in. So you just, it's just to keep yourself more sane, really, to try to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. Because I, we wouldn't have been able to keep functioning to take care of her. No. If we, if it was really like setting in what was happening. And like that, I feel like that, like I've heard you talk about it before on the podcast. Like, I feel like that continued after she passed away. It was it, we were numb for a couple weeks. It really didn't set in. And then even after that, it just gradually got worse. Like after her funeral, everybody said to us, it's going to start getting better now. And I thought like, I don't really know about that. And I had people text me and say like, every day is going to be a bit better than the day before now. And I was like, I feel like for months, every day was worse than the one before. Like, I feel like it was a couple months where I it didn't feel like it was getting better. It just felt like it was consistently getting worse oh. every day. Was that a bereaved parent that told you that? It, there, no. it couldn't have been, right? I was going no. to say, there's just no way it could have been. No. because it's, it's always people who haven't <laughs> lost children. And it's like, and I always kind of am like, oh. Like, yeah, you really have no idea unless you've lost a well, child. And because I thought no bereaved parent would ever tell you that every no. day is going to get a little bit better. Because no. that is not true. I know. And at first when they kept telling me that, and I was like, that is not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Then like later on, I started hearing from more, more like brief parents that that's not actually usually how it works. And then I was like, okay, it's not just me. Like that's normal. But in the moment you think, well, what's wrong with me then? Like this is not getting easier. Mm -hmm. And and it won't for a while yet. You're still really, really early. And mm -hmm. I, I would say you still have amount of numbness there. Still yeah. protecting yourself because you're close to six months now, right? Mm -hmm. But not yeah. quite that. And I feel like all of the numbness wasn't starting to wear off until probably after that six month part of mm -hmm. when it started to seem more real. You know, yeah. you just don't really realize it. And I'm not saying that to be discouraging to you at all, mm -hmm. more to be encouraging to know that as the numbness wears off, that pain could start to even continue to progress. And to just know that that is okay, and normal and to be expected. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people in the general public feel like, okay, that six mark month mark, you're good mm -hmm. now. Like, totally. oh, we can just treat you treat Melissa, just like normal now that it's been six months. Yeah. And maybe that's why it's worse, too. Maybe it's because everyone's looking at you like, well, it's been six months, and so now I can just act like everything's fine, mm -hmm. that it makes it feel less fine. But yeah. it, nothing's even close to fine at six months. Oh, I agree. And like, it's so helpful talking to other brief parents, because I have had a lot of people make comments like, you're not doing better yet. Like, like insinuate like you should probably go like get some therapy if you're not feeling better yet because that's not normal and it's like like I have you know we're we're seeing somebody for it like thanks but 
you know, yeah, just other people think that it's not normal to still be doing so poorly right now. And I feel like I shock people when they ask how we're doing. And I say, like, still not, not well. I feel like it's surprising to them. And I, yeah, I know my friend Stephanie has, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if she said this to people or just wanted to say it to people. But like, when they say things like that, they would say, well, which kid would you be okay just losing? Yeah, <laughs> and just put it back on him. And like, that seems a little harsh. But, you know, okay, six months from now, which one would you be fine with if he was just gone of your kids? Exactly. You want to tell them to like, you don't want anybody to know how you no. feel, but you just, you wish that they would like try to imagine it just for a second. And even then, there's no way they could understand. But it's just like, it's yeah, you're just expected to move forwards. And move on really people expect it feels like sometimes and it just you know like I always try to tell people and I mean I know I'm only six months in but I try to explain to like our friends and family like this is never going to feel like we're never not going to hurt over this like we're always going to be grieving Isla we're always going to be devastated another thing that I had mentioned to you before like because Isla was so young I think a lot of people think, you know, she was just a baby. You can just replace her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had people say to me, like, you're young. You can have more babies. Oh, my gosh. I hate that. I know. And it's like, that's not, hopefully we can have more children someday. But that is not going, like, I'm still going to be devastated. Because mm-hmm. when we do, like, Isla's supposed to be here. Yeah. Like, yeah. nothing is ever going to fix this. It's not how life is supposed to go. It's not the natural like thing well, to happen. And and if and when you do have more children, you will talk to them about their big sister mm-hmm. Isla. They absolutely. will know that she existed. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We even before Isla passed away, the day before Isla passed away, we had visitors over and they actually asked me when we were gonna start trying again. And she wasn't even gone yet. Like and that was like the first moment of me feeling like people yeah, they just think like, well, like this one didn't work out. So just like on to the next. And it's just yeah. like a puppy or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some people instead of texting me to see like how we're doing, they'll text and like ask if we've had any luck getting pregnant. And it's just, it's just like people want to grasp onto that because that's more comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. And the big thing too, I think people feel like as soon as you get pregnant again, they can stop worrying about you. Totally. And so they almost want you to get pregnant just because of that. And what they don't understand is that's going to make you less likely to want to get pregnant again. Yeah, right away, absolutely. Right? Not that you don't want to get pregnant again, because obviously, if you didn't want to be a mother, you wouldn't have gotten pregnant twice already. You do want to be a mother. Yeah. But that isn't going to change your pain and how you hurt for Isla. Mm-hmm. And I and I could see like if we were to ever have more children, I could see me not wanting to share a pregnancy with the world for like until well into it because I know people are going to be like, oh, good, you're okay now. Then. Yeah. And that won't be the case. And like mm-hmm. the fears that's going to come with having more children are just like, I can't help but just like, I hope and pray that that's like, we don't have to do this again, but we can't help but just picture that something's going to happen like this again. Like, how can you not? So it's not going to be like a normal. 
pregnancy, newborn, like it never is going to be. No, not at all. No. Well, we, I recently just had Joey on. I don't know if you've, uh, you remember her. Yeah. She wrote that book just on this very subject. So that I'm sure will be helpful to a lot of people too. Mm. Going through that process after such devastating loss. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you feel like you really would like to share? I just know that the one thing that like has, the one thing that has helped me is just like whenever, like on your podcast or like when I talk to other brave parents or whatever, whenever they tell me to just like, or give me a reminder to be gentle with myself and kind of just feel the feelings. And if you want to just be in bed one day, then do that. And if you want to distract yourself, do that. I just feel like that's been really helpful for me. Just reminders that this is really just like as hard as it feels and as awful as it feels. And just to be patient with yourself and to be gentle with yourself. And And to give yourself grace. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, you give other people grace when they say stupid things. But sometimes it's hard to give grace to yourself. And that is even more important Mm -hmm. to... To give grace to yourself. So hard to remember sometimes, though. But I just, I always appreciate those reminders from people. Well, that's good for you to give that reminder as well, because you are not the only one. I think all of us feel like that's difficult to be able to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing Isla with us today. Again, I just am such an admirer of what you have done and it just seems so brave to me and I really appreciate you telling your story too uh, just to help people just kind of know that how brave it is mm-hmm. how brave it is thank you so much I really really appreciate that and I, I really appreciate being able to talk about Isla oh good Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.